Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas and their intersections in an engaging and accessible way. Well, hello, friends. Um, <laughs> are we all in a constant state of anxiety? Um, here in Ireland, uh, this very day, this episode is going up. Um, we're about to get a new, uh, update on our COVID regulations. Um, so these regulations come out every once in a while. Um, and you know, the week before everybody just gets in this big flurry speculating what's going to be said, what should be said and how it's all going to play out. And I'm sure wherever you are, it's sort of a similar thing with your state um, or your country. And, um, you know, will they do this? Will they do that? And ne never mind the announcement of the regulations. What about after the regulations? What's going to happen after this regulatory period passes? Um, what about the summer? Will I be able to travel? Um, what about, you know, uh, when are restaurants going to open if they're not open where you live? What about gyms? What about this? What about that? Everything is this projection into the future. I mean, anxiety is a relationship to the future. And it's a relationship to the future that is very often felt in our bodies. I mean, really felt in our bodies. You know that feeling that you get. And it might be different for you on your body than where it is for me. But that anxious feeling locates itself. And so, in other words, anxiety is a form of bodily felt fortune telling. We are trying to anticipate the future, to imagine it, and it's not really so good of a method. <laughs> That's what anxiety means to me, at least in part, that people are trying to tell the future everywhere, but they're very limited in what options they have, what symbols they might see, what kinds of language they might use to describe it. So anxiety is that you know, has that bodily symptom as well. So we feel it somewhere on our anatomy. One of the things that people have turned to in our time <laughs> um, in to maybe deal with this anxiety is a magical toolkit, right? Whether that's astrology or tarot or other forms of divination, these are in a sense a way of laying out the shape of anxiety, of seeing anxiety as filled with symbols. So um, when you do the tarot spread in front of you, you get a sort of path through a fairy market instead of just feeling your way through total darkness. There's actually this richly symbolic populated pathway um, through the world for you, through your decisions, your choices, what's coming. And, you know, I don't want to reduce the visibility of tarot in our lives because have you noticed it's it's been coming up more and more astrology has become more and more normalized i talked about this on the last episode with joseph uh ananda josephson storm um about how it's becoming more and more present in our lives but i don't want to reduce the sort of revisibility of tarot and other divination methods to just anxiety it's just a component but it is an important component to notice. But I do want to say one of the reasons it's important for me to say I don't want to reduce it to that is because, uh, other than just giving lip service to the complexity of these cultural forms, is that 
these methods never really went away. Just because you're seeing them more now on Instagram and Twitter and in your in your communities and maybe you've bought a deck or you're paying more attention to your sign or whatever it is, um, it never really went away. It just had a different form and culture. That could be psychics on television. It could be ghost hunters. It could be agricultural diviners. Um, it could be tarot readers. It could be people who put you in touch with the dead. But there's a whole class of this kind of mystic divination work that sort of moves and changes its form or... Um, if not changes its form, uh, different versions of it receive different emphasis in different eras, right? Like I remember, uh, <laughs> and I, I talk about it a lot in this episode, or at least a little bit, Miss Cleo or James von Prague or people that are sort of big TV uh, spiritual presences. And um, what's really interesting to me about that is that there's an entire class of workers. So tarot readers who charge for tarot readings, psychics, um, people who do those uh, cold readings of, you know, I'm going to put you in touch with your dead relative. Those people are workers. And it's a whole kind of work, a whole field of labor that's excluded from the way that we usually talk about discourse, uh, or (laughs) we talk about work and workers and the discourse about work and workers on the left. So there's this whole field of labor, and with it, a whole field of labor lore and strategies for eroding the faulty economic, cultural, and political structures we live in that's just sort of cast away. Now, on the one hand, the left is supposed to care about laborers, and as someone who did sex work for a long time, I can assure you that there are kinds of laborers whose work is seen as worse than others, And it's not because we do work that supports the state. We're not like cops or whatever. Actually, in a lot of ways, we're the opposite. (laughs) But uh, our work is seen as worse than other forms of work because they don't fit into a certain kind of austere democratic socialist or Marxist party line and its reality claims and its ontologies. Now, that's not uh, a comment on Marx or uh, some anarchist thinkers, but I'm just talking about the way things have played out recently, you know, and play out now uh, for the most part in those spaces. So on the one hand, we have the resurfacing of these tools. We, we see them more and more as anxiety takes the stage. We can see more tarot, more astrology, more divination, more casting of the bones and runes and all that in um, so-called secular spaces or hipster spaces. Are there even hipster spaces anymore? But you know what I mean, in leftist spaces as well. And on the other, there's a general ignorance about the field of labor that relates itself to these tools. It's reminiscent, I think, of the tension around so-called alternative medicine and agriculture, which is often under fire in leftist discourse, and especially progressive and liberal discourse. I know that there's a big difference, but we can talk about there being a similar problem in both sometimes because they idolize science and they need science to excuse everything by making it scientific. Like organic stuff might be acceptable if it's certified organic because there might be some science behind it. Uh, But if there's not, it needs to be condemned outright. So like the scientific permission slip is needed to allow in so-called alternative medicine um, and agriculture and so on and so forth. 
And I think that there's tension around that too, because obviously a lot of people who don't have a lot of money, they go to these different methods because they don't have insurance. And I think sometimes that gets spun as, oh, um, they've been uh, tricked into doing this. They've been taken advantage of, the poor are being taken advantage of because we don't have healthcare. But actually, a lot of people prefer to use that kind of healthcare as well because they don't want to enter into a certain kind of medical narrative, industrial system, agricultural narrative, industrial system, so on and so forth. So those two things sort of remind me of each other. And I, I wanted to talk with someone about all of this, <laughs> at least to some extent. So I asked my friend, the author, tower reader, and actress Rachel True onto the show. Many of you, of course, know Rachel from her appearance in the uh, 90s cult film The Craft, which is about a coven of teen witches. And that's how I knew her, too, before I met her, right? We'd, we met at a party in L.A., a, a, like lunch, brunch party? <laughs> Those happened in L.A. at our mutual friend Alec Mappa's house. And I just thought, oh, cool. Um, there's this person who got to be part of the revival of occult themes in Hollywood movies because that movie had a pretty tremendous impact, um, especially for women and girls. Um, when she told me a few years later that she was writing a book on tarot, though, because I knew her that way initially, I figured she was asked by some publishing company oh, hey, you were in a movie about witches, why don't you make a tarot deck, right? But I didn't know that Rachel had been doing tarot readings for most of her adult life. And so when she finally gave me one, um, I was blown away. <laughs> like the depth of the reading that Rachel gave me, the specificity, the intensity of the presence that Rachel brings while she's reading, I mean, it's really profound. So because of that, I later invited her to do an event in L.A., which featured me and Caitlin Doty and Gordon White, which was called Chaotic Good. And Rachel gave tarot readings for the entire sold-out event, and she was just buzzing at the end, and so was everyone else who got a reading from her. Now her book and her deck are out, um, The True Heart Intuitive Tarot. And the book and the deck are both beautiful. They come together. Uh, and <laughs> I'm so excited that I got to use these cards and to read the book. Um, but using the cards in particular, a lot of times before I had this chat with Rachel, it really got me involved in the feeling and the current of what she's up to. And the book itself is also great. It's uh, every major arcana card has a story uh, from her own life whether it relates to acting or it relates to um, foster care or it relates to uh, magical events in her life, all that sort of stuff. Um, so she'll have her description of the card and then she'll have a story from her life. And it's really great. It very much personalizes and intensifies, I think, uh, the images on each card. This episode goes through tarot on multiple levels. So I think it's great for whatever your level uh, or even interest and knowledge would be. So we, we start by talking about some of the themes I mentioned before with the workers stuff and the politics, tarot and culture, tarot and politics, tarot and black communities. Then we discuss what tarot is. So there's this philosophical level there. How does it work? Rachel has an idea of tarot as a story and I talk about the deck uh, as being um, a sort of body or a being, and then the 
individual cards are aspects of that being's anatomy. Then we move deeper into the specifics about her deck and her book. The deck is colorful, it's beautiful, it's filled with people who aren't just white alabaster figures. It's filled with birds and eyes and flowers and symbols that you don't usually see. Um, she also reads a story from the book that comes with the deck, um, and I think the story is really great. It relates to the strength card in the deck. And we give some tips and thoughts on readings. So I think it's a great episode that goes through its own sort of reading of the tarot deck on multiple different levels. Rachel has a Patreon, by the way, which is patreon.com forward slash Rachel True. So it's her name is R-A-C-H-E-L-T-R-U-E. Um, and she does uh, live streaming readings, I think twice a month or uh, something like that. And it's it's great. I mean, I think that supporting people on Patreon, obviously, it's very important to me. So I will also say, go to patreon.com forward slash Rachel True, and then also go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support this show if you don't already. And if you do, thank you very much. I'm not sure <laughs> if you've seen the craft, if you uh, loved it, or didn't love it, but I know that you probably have a favorite occult pop culture movie or 90s cult classic movie or whatever. And so before I start this episode, I just want to tell you about another podcast um, that has a lot to do with 90s movies and culture and also some 80s stuff as well. But, you know, before I tell you all about it, I just want to say the reason I'm doing this is because I don't have ads at the top of the show. I just, you know, the show is fully funded by Patreon and listeners, and I have that relationship with you guys, so that's awesome. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. But, um, you know, I, I want to use a little bit of time in the beginning of these shows to amplify the presence of people who are doing work that I love and also just supporting this world of podcasts because podcasts are super, like the pro proliferation of them, it's like, it's getting a little crazy. Like today I saw what I just consider to be like ridiculous that Obama and Bruce Springsteen started a podcast. Why? I don't know what that would offer the world, um, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> but there are so many out there. So one that I really like is called Juvenalia. And Juvenalia is, um, it's a podcast run by a guest who has been on this show, who is on Against Everyone with Connor B93, Sarah Maria Griffin, who's a dark fantasy writer, and she's also a tarot reader. We do tarot readings for each other all the time. And Alan McGuire. And so uh, Juvenalia if you just look it up on your favorite podcast platform, whatever you're listening to this one on, it should be there, but you can also go to juvenalia.net um, and you'll find it there. Each episode features someone talking about something in pop culture that meant a lot to them. So I did an episode where I talked about um, how much Clive Barker meant to me, the author who wrote Candyman and Hellraiser and Nightbreed and you know all that stuff. Um, but of course, I talked more about his books, but we end up talking about movies a lot because they're much more sort of pop culture-y than his extremely bloody and violent 
books, which really, um, even though those movies are bloody and violent, I mean, the books and the stories are even more intense. But there are episodes like um, there's an Irish writer, Louise O'Neill, who talks about uh, Return to Oz, uh, that crazy ass movie. <laughs> Do you remember that with like severed heads and all that? Um, Simon O'Connor, who runs the Museum of Literature here in Ireland, talks about Twin Peaks. Uh, the humorist and essayist Patrick Frayne talks about the comic series 2000 AD, the British comic series. So if you're noticing, it's also a great way to account, uh, acquaint yourself with the pop currents running through Ireland and to familiarize yourself with the Irish artistic landscape because it's all Irish guests. It's an Irish podcast. Um, but I really love it. It's just fun. And you know, my experience on the show was that we had a lot of fun, but it also would just sort of dip into these deeper places. And because Sarah has such a, an artistic and creative way of speaking, it's, it ends up being very surprising on her part. And because Alan has this um, very sort of, <laughs> he has this sort of funny, charming, uh, really, it, it's like, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it because it, this might sound bad about Alan, but I don't mean it bad at all. Like he has this very sort of pop cultural inquisitive way of talking about things. Like you're talking to somebody who is you know, never getting into jargon, but nevertheless is a pretty incisive pop critic, but it comes across as like bubblegum flavored in the best way possible. So um, I really love talking with Alan and talking with Sarah on this show. I think it's a great show. I think you should listen to it. It's Juvenalia. And if you like the craft, I mean, there's going to be all kinds of stuff on there that you're going to want to hear people talk about. All right. So that's it. I think I've talked enough now. Um, so on to more of me talking, but this time with Rachel True. Here we go. everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Rachel True. I'm so excited to be speaking with you again. Hi. Hi, Connor. <laughs> um, so I think I want to start by talking about tarot in culture. Um, you know, I was talking with my friend who lives in New York. I mentioned this on the last episode I did with this religion scholar, Joseph Josephson Storm. But I was talking with my friend in New York, and she's in this, uh, a lot of leftist movement stuff. She does prison abolition movement stuff. She does boycott divestment and sanctions movement um, for Palestinian rights. And she was saying, you know, it's so strange. Suddenly, all the leftists that I know in New York are doing tarot and astrology. And where did that come from? Like, I, I feel like I missed that moment in time. And so I was trying to sort of break it down with her and I had various inroads and answers, but, but I do know for sure that there is a kind of visibility now to it. And I wonder where you think that's coming from. I think everything has always gone in cycles, you know, like when we look back at the spirituality movement of the 1880s, you know, mm -hmm. or the, or the 1910s and 20, you know, th that everything goes in cycles. Um, but I would say at least in my little American pop culture mind that this sprang out of, um, being vilified, all this stuff, tarot cards, spirituality, alternative spirituality, whatever you want, esoteric studies, whatever you want to call it, it was really vilified 
coming out of the 70s into the 80s, you know, with Satanic Panic, it all got rolled into that. So mm. kind of pushed it to the side for a moment there. And, um, you know, the dollar became our spirituality. So then I would say for me, when I look at it, it sort of seemed to have turned a corner um, probably after, well, Oprah's The Secret 07. <laughs> I think uh-huh, opened uh-huh. some doors. That was 2007, and um, I call it the secret 07 for a reason. It is so specific to a time in America pre uh, pre stock crash, pre great uh-huh. crash of 2008, right? Because the thing the secret offered was a little pastiche of Eastern medicine and things like th- different philosophies, but it didn't really. And I'm tr- not trying to knock on that book because I think it opened people's minds to alternative thinking. And the power of uh, positive thought and your mind and all of that. But it left out the part where you have to actually do the work, you know, and that they talk about little Timmy wanting a bike and dreaming of a bike and putting (laughs) and cutting out pictures of a bike. And then a goddamn bike shows up at his house. And that just doesn't really happen all the time in real life. What happens more in real life is you want a bike, you think of a bike, you get the pictures of the bike, but little Timmy could have gotten a, could have, could have done some extra chores around the house, maybe to, to show the universe uh-huh. that he really wanted that bike instead of just dreaming about it, which is one component of magic. There is the practical application of things. So cut to after we have our great recession here in the U.S., I think people became very discouraged, right? We're in this new century. There is a, what is the God now? You know, what is the Mm. God? So I think that people were ultimately looking for the God inside themselves. Like I'm not a churchy religious person, but people I know do go to church all the time, say God is everywhere. God is within me. And I think people just felt really out of touch with that sense of something bigger inside themselves. So I think that's part of why it all became uh, popular, but also let's not forget the advent of social media really helped. I mean, YouTube, has really helped. There's a lot of um, really good readers on YouTube. There's also a lot of biggest card sharks and everyone mm-hmm. collects <laughs> money on mm-hmm. there for generic readings for signs. You know, like here's a generic reading for Scorpio. I'm not a huge fan of those because it's too generic is my mm-hmm. word. But again, your original question is how did this all become? Uh, I think if you were to look through history every 20 to 30 years, this becomes popular. Right. It's sort of, it's sort of like redeposits itself in, in, in different forms. Right. Because even I've heard you give a lot of interviews where you talk about Miss Cleo, right? Like, um, like my favorite. I, so if anybody doesn't remember Miss Cleo, she was like, there were infomercials for her. I mean, it was just constantly running infomercials for the psychic who would do, Psychic, psychic readings and like the big the big one was like I called her and she said mother mother to be and I said well I am pregnant like do you remember? It's like and so like the the um these hopefully I can find some ads that I can put in the show notes um some links to the videos but the the um the fact of the matter is like the psychic power stuff was prevalent for a while and then there was the cold case like James von Prague, like contacting the dead. So it's like, there are different versions. And then you have, right, the secret um, 2007, then there's like- And mediums, sorry to interrupt, but mediums, when we think about the history of mediums, especially in America- It's 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 infiltrated in our culture that every <laughs> and there's again a lot of charlatans involved mm-hmm. within that, but then there are a lot of real people. I'm a very intuitive person. I've always been, and then once I kind of 
grappled with it my whole life and didn't really, you know, kind of understand it. When I was younger, I realized it was something I could train and hone Mm. in. And I'm certainly not the only person who's like, wait, there's some extra senses. Do you mean it was gut intuition back in the day? And now we're calling it something else mystical, but it's always (laughs) been with us. You know what I mean? There's just a new name. I, I remember when I was 18, someone told me something ridiculous, like, Bear is the wonder, and this aspirin is the wonder drug. And I was like, wow, not knowing that's a slogan that's been around for years. <laughs> no, but every generation discovers something, right? Rediscovers right. it. And so I do think uh, all of this is very, um, again, it's very now friendly because if you're an 18 year old nubile, newly hatched witchling, you can just take your deck on TikTok and pull out a card and put it between your breasts. Mm-hmm. And that is it, right? That's one incarnation of a certain kind of spirituality now. I'm I'm not necessarily knocking on that if I was a teen, whatever. But as a mm-hmm. grown-up, I want to know you know what that actual card means before you nestle it in your breast. Right, That's where right. I'm at with it. Um, <clears throat> and I think that uh, it makes sense, though, that sexuality is a little tied in with all this because it's an empowering thing. Right. And when we feel empowered, especially when we're coming out of our teenage years and sexuality is empowerment in a certain way, I always say uh, 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 the craft, you know, as our skirts got shorter, our powers got stronger. (laughs) So ultimately it is a bit of an analogy for um, sexuality and witchcraft in that movie. We're very tied together. So I can sort of see why uh, younger people coming into their own and being able to utilize that or drawn to it. Do you think, do you think, I mean, sometimes I think um, because the, you know, like when, when she's talking about leftist politics, like leftist politics for a long time, because they're so like related to class, they can be really austere in a lot of ways. And I was thinking Mm -hmm. about how in the past, um, you know, the past 10 years, especially, there's been at least some more visibility of people of color, people from different cultures, um, that uh, cultural backgrounds, that sort of thing, becoming more, at least, uh, if not welcome, than asked into or asked to be part of the left or be representing the left. And I was thinking about how if that's if if the spirituality um, or the spiritual traditions uh, of different people, different cultures are not reflected in the very sort of white Western version of the left, then people would start bringing fragments of their spiritual traditions or, or versions of spiritual practice and ritual that was acceptable to the left, um, that somehow you could bring the accoutrement of tarot and astrology into those kinds of spaces because it was somehow less challenging I don't know, then bringing in uh, certain forms of witchcraft or bringing in uh, voodoo or bringing in a complete sort of non-materialist like Hindi magic or something like that. So I'm just, I'm just wondering if maybe that has part of it too. Sometimes I think it's like we got to bring our tools with us or like, or different versions or, or t- versions of our tools that are recognizable to you. Right. But not necessarily the whole cloth spirituality that we might want to bring into these spaces, which are traditionally in a lot of ways, very atheist or secular spaces. Well, that's a good point you have at the end there too, because it, in a lot of these spaces and it was uh, more vogue, right. To be atheist um, and believe in science and, 
that's it. But we also know that that's all mutable and changeable. And that's just as much magic uh-huh. <laughs> as anything else. So, um, they I, are for, bear, me, for example, yeah, <laughs> uh, but it really is, uh, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I, people out there listening, you do know your doctors know like 3% of what's actually happening in your body. And that's it. <laughs> like, if you know that you can enter into the battlefield stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is a synthesis. We're also, because we are still in a bit of a caveman stage, right? We don't understand really the ocean. We don't under, we don't even know how a cat purrs. So there's a lot of things that we don't understand and are Uh mystical in a sense in our mind. And so these actual, like you said, tools, a tangible tool, a manifestation in a sense of uh, Mm. something that can enlighten us and bring us uh, uh, closer to our own higher self and our spirit. But as far as the spaces you're talking about, um, I think that's over necessary. I mean, you know, I'm a grown up and I remember thinking, Gosh, it's awfully um, like at NYU with the grad students, let's say, gosh, it's awfully, it's awfully white. It's awfully (laughs) judgmental. It's awfully um, sure of itself, isn't it? Right. (laughs) It's very sure. It's very sure of itself, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. And and so that's my polite way. (laughs) (laughs) What's it, what's interesting to me too, is then like, so even though like I'm, I'm not harping on. I don't, and I don't necessarily want to drag you down this path too far. But like, the with with like leftist discourse, which obviously I'm way more aligned with than than the right. But it's like when you have people talking about class all the time, and yet there's this whole class of workers that are relying on magical tools as their livelihood, whether it's tarot or psychic. Or psychics. Or, but wait, let me jump in and yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but ask a question. When you say talk about class all the time, you mean in those rarefied airspaces, right? Because what I know about America is we do not talk about class and we should be. Yes. We, that's, we have yeah. it since the 80s because we're letting our middle class, we don't have one really anymore. So we just right. don't talk about class the way Europe does. Right. Yeah. I'm talking about class in those spaces where, you know, people are talking through leftist discourse or talking about socialism, gotcha. Marxism, that kind of stuff. Workers' rights, you know, but, labor but you know rights. What? And in, so, in the end, though, what I love about, I'll say this about tarot, it's a really practical deck right in my hands and what you're talking about is intellectual discourse about Mm. something theory right theory about things rather than practical application and now let me turn it to what you kind of said because Ah. in lower middle class spaces uh tarot readers soothsayers hearers seers were always really the medicine man of of their little area those people did not financially have the means to go to the doctor or just didn't trust a doctor. Mm-hmm. So they would go to so-and-so. And sometimes when black people kind of harsh me out about tarot, I'm like, really? Because I'm pretty sure, you know, in your little town, there's, um, you know, aunts, uh, grandma, so-and-so y'all go to who throws mm-hmm. bones or does uh-huh. cards or does something. And that was the person the neighborhood went to as their, as their shrink, really, as their yeah. therapist. Well, you say that like, it, it, you know, that it's shrink in a box, right? Like that. And I think, I think that that's really powerful. That is, that is one of the really. Shrink profound... is a 70s word for a therapist. For therapist. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, but I love, but I love the thing that you say, like, you know, because, you know, there, there are all these alternative quote unquote alternative, and yet actually have a real long lineage systems of healing, of empowering, of discussing, of thinking through things, 
like tarot, like astrology, all that, that are accessible to classes that may not actually have the money to do the other methods of healing and all that kind of stuff. So I think that that's also a more feeling space than, than, and I'm not, listen, Mm. I'm not bagging on what you're saying. We need our intellectuals. Right. Right, And I, I feel like I straddle the line. I'm more clever than I am intellectual, but, but for the next sentence, let's just pretend I'm the latter. I'm an intellectual townie. You know uh-huh. what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> is how yeah. I would describe myself. Oh, I uh, hope so. I hope I get to be that one day. I like that. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, you could just annoy yourself with the title like I did. <laughs> <But> basically, <laughs> it's that I overstand normal uh-huh. people. But I also have been in the rarefied circles you're talking about, having the discourse and this. And I say right. it like this because there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes. And you know that's true. We're theorizing, we're talking about, mm-hmm. but we're not necessarily connected to the spaces sometimes of the people we are talking about and discussing, you know? Right. Right. So I think what I like about the new age, quote unquote, because there was the new age 80s movement or 70s movement, but but okay, we're in a new new age movement. We're actually in <laughs> the age of Aquarius, right? We're not in the dawning anymore. We're actually in the age of Aquarius. So what I like though, is that I think these, these, these cards and these things, many, many ways of doing it are all just conduits to our higher and better selves, whatever that means. I know when you're sitting in leftist circles, you're really discoursing and discussing to get to everyone's higher and better self. Right. Mm -hmm. And through theory, you can, but also I say through practical application, because I call it a shrink in a box, because before you can get to your magic, I think it doesn't mean, listen, you can be fucked up and be magical, trust me. But what I think is the more clear you are with yourself, your motivations, your shadow side, you shrink yourself in a sense and under oh, just understand, even if you don't change the behavior, mm-hmm. if you understand what motivates that. So I say when I want at a very basic level, if I want a box of donuts, which I love, <laughs> chocolate and cement donuts, they're not even <laughs> and cement. Yeah, yeah, like the cardboardy ones. Totally. That's what I want. <clears throat> but if I if I'm a I'm aware of my shadow side, so I say, okay, Rachel, if you get that. You are prepared that you will gain five to six pounds and you will feel physically bad. Your joints will hurt. You will. Are you prepared for that? Sometimes Mm -hmm. the answer is fuck yes, by the Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But most of the time it's no. (laughs) And I think that's a that's a basic analogy for a tangible thing like food. But I'm saying these are the things that we have to do every day. I spend all day in a sense negotiating with myself to stay sane, Mm -hmm. to stay to stay tethered you know, to, to, to the real earth. So I, I think I'd love to see somehow someday I'd love to see a town hall between like some real down, down home spiritual people and the heady crowd. Yeah. You talk to the left. I really would though, not, not just for sport, but for a meeting of the minds, you know, because part of doing the shadow work we talk about in the book uh, and shrinking ourselves is to take away judgments about certain things too. You know, whether it's a judgment about the upper echelon or the lower echelon, you know. Well, well, one, I mean, one of the big missions of this podcast is to bring that kind of spiritual sense to people that are trying to engage in intellectual or leftist or anarchist or socialist discourse, because I think it's actually something that's been sorely missing for so long and it's so important. But one of the reasons why it's missing is the same reason why the left has such problem with sex work. It's that 
it's that it won't recognize a class of workers that are doing something that are outside its own kind of normal understanding. So like I was saying before, tarot workers, astrologers, psychics, and then sex workers as this other you know thing, but maybe tantric workers, whatever that might be, they don't get uh, included in the broad map of who's a worker, who is but, but you know, struggling, right? You know this because you travel in those circles. There's right. elitism. It's, yeah. There's pure. Like, just call it what it is. Right. right. It's elitism. You're talking about a group of people who are thinking brains, judging right. another right. group over here who are not necessarily not thinking brains, but they're very much using their bodies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that is the antithesis. I... I, you know, I hung out with a lot of fucking NYU intellectuals. It's literally the antithesis. <laughs> They're just brains at a table, a lot of them. Now, I'm not saying the right. people you know. What I'm saying is from my perspective. I understand, yeah. There wasn't as much um, uh, connectedness, frankly, with that. So when you say they don't understand that, I'm saying, no, they don't, actually. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you know? I, lo- I, love, I love the description of, like, the bodily function of the tarot because we don't, I mean, we're going to talk in a little bit about what the tarot actually is, you know, from, from your perspective and from mine, but I don't think people even think about that aspect of the tarot that much where it's like, I'm actually doing something with my hands first in the shuffling, then in the connection. I mean, you write about this in, in, in your book, true hard intuitive tarot guidebook, but it's like, we, we we're actually doing something with the shuffling, the holding of the cards, the physical object, the laying it down, the setting the space, the looking into the other person's eyes, the being there. And I think that that is somehow lost. It's just like, oh, you know, but it is actually, it's not, I mean, it's not like masonry, but it is, you know, like where you're laying stones and putting the paste and like, you know, or building a building or something, but it does have a physical component to it, a bodily component because you're also tracking your body as you do it right and the you're sensations. also you're also exchanging energy though <clears throat> it's not it's right it's the physical shuffling and the thing and the thing with the cards too but it is not just that it's that you are opening up your channel to receive someone else's energy and even if you don't believe in airy fairy stuff you can go to the supermarket and feel someone's energy over there right that's right. all we're talking about um but if you're on this podcast you probably do understand those concepts but i'm saying mm. some people don't and i'm like have you never walked into a party and been like the vibe is weird that's mm-hmm. literally all we're talking about is, is picking up the energy so that requires a connection mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and, and it's physical in a sense an exchange of energy Sometimes it's not an exchange. I'm sure Connor too. You can like, I don't need the cards to read people. Right. right. I don't. I don't. I did for a long time. But then once I understood the concept of them and what we're doing here in the exchange of energy, I can exchange that energy or withhold mine and pick up someone else's energy. Yeah, let, let me because let me try I to. I just want to jump in and say one thing because there's so many yeah, yeah, empaths who hit me up on Instagram and they say, <laughs> I'm an. Don't laugh. <laughs> I'm not I laughing at the empaths. I just know when whenever anybody starts a sentence with these people hit me up on Instagram, I know <laughs> that it's going to well, go in a certain direction. All, but go ahead. Introduce themselves properly. How about that? Let's just start with that. I am a stranger, not your cousin. But at that aside, if you're an empath and you're going, I'm an empath and I don't know what to do with it all. And I, should I tell people and what should I do? And all, all, all. you sound a little self-absorbed. First of all, I'm going to say, mm-hmm. second of all, you're an empath. 
that is our responsibility, not anyone else's. So mm. it's up to us to go, oh, I'm an empath. I'm picking up energy. It's affecting me in a way I like or don't like, but it's affecting me. Number one, figure that out. Then figure out your sense of protection. That's it. It's as easy as, not as easy, <laughs> but as simple as, hey man, that's your bag. <laughs> because right. when someone hits me up and they say, should I tell everyone? I know it's not about the empath thing. You want attention. So if you'd written me saying, I want more attention, I probably would have respected the email with the DM more. <laughs> right, right. Well, so, but I want to go back to this thing where you're talking about the, the energy, you know, just to sort of break it down for people, maybe in a way that they can relate to the tarot. You know, we have an intense, um, we, we have an intense uh, spike in anxiety, right? And I mean, we have for a long time, but it's just getting even more and more and more. And I think when people th- are anxious, what they're doing is they're casting themselves into a limited sort of future. They're having a future thinking, they're future tripping. They're thinking about how things could go or how they won't go or what paths are going to be blocked, what obstacles are going to be in the way. So <clears throat> everybody experiences anxiety as a bodily um as a bodily sensation as well. Anxiety is not just a bodily sensation, but they experience it that way. So in other words, anybody can understand that we try to tell the future with our bodily sensations because that's what anxiety is. But anyone (laughs) can, right. right. No, anxiety is living in the future, depression, the past. That's, you know, that's a common expression, but it's so true. And we are all literally trying to soothsay all day long. Exactly. Living in anxiety. Right. But usually, here's what I say. I love cognitive behavioral therapy and, and studies like that as well, because I think if you can identify the habit of going, I suck, I'm never going to get this thing. You know, most people, they take their anxiety to a negative place. It's that lower voice. If you can say, oh, I do this and you can mm-hmm. you can do without judgment, look at it and go, oh, I actually do this thing. Release the shame from that because mm-hmm. most of us carry shame. That's the truth. And that keeps us bogged down then. But then we can kind of shift everything and we can say, oh, all of it's a delusion. My brain is creating this all. So the, the voice that says I'm the worst person in the world is delusion. So is the voice that says I'm a vampire, thousand year living uh, time traveler. That's what I always <laughs> like to joke about. And so neither one is true, but I just tend to lean into the one that makes me feel hot, more, as I call it, high vibe. The one that make, There's one that makes me slump down in my seat. All of a sudden my shoulders go down. If I go, I suck, I'm the worst. But if I go, no, I'm the best. I can do that. I can... I can get, I'm clever. I can figure this out. Both are delusions. So just, I'm like, seriously, lean into the one that makes you feel better. As long as, you know, the trick is though, you cannot lean too far into delusion (laughs) because then (laughs) you live in illusion. And, and usually let's talk about tarot for a second. You you build your house on a faulty foundation, the tower card, and it might come crashing down. So it's a delicate balance. Yeah, it's what it's what you know. Byron Katie says um, something like, uh, "It's all a dream, but you can question the nightmares, right? Like, why not question the nightmares? But but it's all a dream. It's not. It's not. But I think that that's you oh, know no. when it comes to when it comes to anxiety and and people. You're right. Like Susan, that's a great way to say it. Is that they're Susan all day because anxiety is a means of trying to tell the future um, and not really going for it. So you cannot play the victim in a situation if you look at your own participation. And I think that 
that that's we're in a little bit of a tricky age for that, where people are mm-hmm. saying are free to speak up about their trauma finally, which is so important, right? It's so important that people are not silenced anymore. But I also see a cottage industry of people digging into that identity. And I'm going to suggest gently, like, take it to the next level, whether it's with tarot or magic or church, or I don't give a fuck, therapy, whatever it is your bag <laughs> is. But framing oneself as a victim uh, is always going to brush up wrongly against a black person, frankly. I don't have time for white people posing as victims right now. I really don't. (laughs) No, that's my truth. No, I get it. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying it's not true victims who need to tell their story. There's a lot of those too. But what I'm saying is there's a cottage industry around this terrible thing happened to me. And I want to say, what can we do with that? Because these traumatic things happened in our lives, right? And the challenge has always been, how the fuck do I carry on despite or because of, or how did this thing shape me so that I can go be the best version of me? And that may sound a little uh, optimistic, but that's my theory. Well, I mean, I th- it's, it's a natural, like, to me, that's a natural extension of, or, or uh, maybe that's not the right direction, but of doing tarot, right? It's like, the idea, like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to pull apart these pieces and look at them laid before me, right? Where I think people who, people are really encouraged right now by a certain form of the attention economy and capitalism to live in their victimhood and let that fuel who they are. Well, and let how that do you think it ties like in with what, capitalism? You know, yeah, what's how that? do you think it ties in? How does it tie in for you with capitalism? Well, I think, I think people are really deeply encouraged right now to report their victimhood as a commodifiable object, right? Like something that they True. put out there and then they stop there. And I went through that phase. I mean, I wrote think pieces that were really successful that were about terrible things that had happened. But for me, I always wrote them because I thought that they would be helpful to other people in like getting out of a bad situation or looking at culture in a different way or whatever. But I still had to sort of go through that. But I see it still now, I see it still now happening where it's like, you know, the thing is, if you stay in the space of struggle, because you identify so deeply with struggle, then you can never change anything, right? It becomes so part of you that you're terrified to give up that space of struggle rather than sort of laying it out and moving on. And It's kind of a law of magic, isn't it? Yeah, well, to- totally. And psychoanalysis and whatever. But, you know, in your book, you talk about your great grandmother, you write about your great grandmother having certain uh, psychic or magical abilities. But, you know, I never met that grandma is the truth. My dad's side of the family's wife. They disowned him. Uh, I'm not sure if it was just about my mom, but like that, you know, I'd never met them. Uh, one, I only met one person from his family um, at the end of their life. So it was always kind of this mythical thing. You know, you have this, you hear tales of, of, of your grandmother who did this and that. And then my father had these two uh, like sort of bumps on his forehead that when he would get really mad, they would turn really red and he was bipolar. So he got really wow. mad a lot. And um, we always thought horns were going to sprout. So I think I just came up believing in all this. I believed fairy tales when I was a kid. If someone said you could do this, I believed it. But also like a lot of children, I think I was just naturally open to it and saw things. And I was living in New York City, which was overwhelming energetically for a child. I would feel everyone's emotions and things. And I remember being mortified 
because I would, I would, I couldn't stop giggling around babies at a certain age. Like I would see a baby and just couldn't stop laughing myself. And that would embarrass me at seven. But I think, you know, once I got older, I realized, oh, I was really just communing with their spirit. Wasn't I like mm-hmm. just picking up that little baby spirit energy, which was happy and joy. Um, and, and to me, that's again, a lot of magic is, do you understand that there's all this energy crisping around you that you can find? But I think because I grew up with my, uh, once I was out of foster care and went to live with my dad and my stepmom, my dad was like a disillusioned Jewish intellectual. So, you know, there was a fair amount of just things that were normal in my Mm. house that may not have been normal in other areas, but I was always interested in this and I suffered from sleep paralysis a lot as a child. And I understood that I could control my dreams at a very young age because with sleep paralysis, you're awake, but you're not awake. Um, They used to think it was demons sitting on your chest back in the Mm. medieval times, but I would wake up and, but not be, but not be able to move my body and know that I was awake and I'd have to lull myself back to sleep. Or I would go, okay, well, you're asleep awake. What do you want to do? <laughs> like you could fly, mm. you could do all these things, you know? So to me, it was just part of my DNA. And maybe that is from being, you know, having Jewish mysticism steeped with African stuff, because I always think this is so much more the norm for me. I mean, we have, as black people, gotten rid of and and let go of all these vestiges of slavery, except for organized religion, which is interesting. The very religion that was used to, you know, contain us. And I'm not trying to talk shit about Jesus. Religion is beautiful. I just mean the way you know better than I do, the way these organizations have told people that these little paper tarot cards are evil and a conduit to something evil. Uh, and I'm like, uh, Oh, uh, you guys, it's cardboard printed up in China. Probably. I don't know. You know, like it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's like cards are not the magic. The magic mm. is in what that image viscerally stimulates in you. Because again, the whole goal with the book is to demystify, destigmatize it for a certain group, especially my American black peers. But to, to have people understand, like, if you are indeed created in your God's image, does that not mean all that magic is within you, you right. know? Right. A yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the two sides of your, your heritage. I mean, I know, so my father's from a village in the mountains, basically, in Syria. My, my, my grandparents are olive farmers, you know, with, lived their whole lives with no electricity. And so oh, wow. he, he lived in this, you know kind of quasi-Christian, also nomadic um, place before he uh, emigrated to the U.S. And so, you know, I, and my mom was raised by religious fundamentalists in Buffalo, New York, because she's white, right? And so, (laughs) but. That sounds miserable. Yeah, right. So, so. It's not really cold. (laughs) So, so, so interestingly though, like they both had their own kinds of like folk and magic traditions that they brought into the house, right? So my, my dad was always telling these stories that were very fairy tale, far off kinds of folk tales about the village that he, you know, grew up up in and it seems so distant and far off to me as somebody who was growing up in suburban slash rural Pennsylvania and then my mom you know she was doing these um she would often do these kinds of Pennsylvania Dutch because she she had lived in Pennsylvania for so long and that's where I grew up. But these sort of Pennsylvania Dutch magic things, like throwing the apple peel over your shoulder and seeing what kind of letter it sort of formed when it landed on the floor, and you know that kind of stuff. So we. So I was getting these kinds of, there was this so kind of normalization astro- of it. 
primorthal, primorthological magic. That's actually like they're literally doing well the rituals and things. Right, right. They're doing they're doing some of those things, and so you're getting that. I mean, it's something that you know we won't talk about the craft too much because you've done like eight bajillion um, <laughs> interviews about the craft. But there's that one part where you do light as a feather, stiff as a board, in that, and we certainly did that. Like that was a staple of just Pennsylvania life, Bloody Mother Mary, like really? those kinds of things. Yeah, like we would do these things. And so it was like that kind of atmosphere just per was always permeating, even though I grew up, quote unquote, with no religion. I wasn't taken to church. I wasn't whatever. But those things just showed up in there. I know they were showing up in everybody's lives. So, yeah, I, I, I have that. I have an affinity for what you're saying where there was magic all around. It just was normal. You know, it was just normal. Yeah, yes. I mean, and even I think Carl Jung talks about becoming interested in psychology because of his own rituals uh -huh. that he had developed to yeah. comfort himself as a child, right? So we all have our rituals and things we do, whether they're taught by, you know, uh, your parents or their grandparents or their grandparents or stuff we come up with our own because I'm very big on creating your own ritual as well. You know, it's just uh, powerful. Well, so listen, I'm, <laughs> you're reminding me of something that I wanted to ask you, which was, um, but I didn't, I didn't write down ask you, but now I'm reminded, which is, you know, you, you often talk about how you had two books when you're growing up that you were really like sort of precociously involved with. And one was a Carl Jung book. And you often talk about the Carl Jung book, but the one you don't ever talk about is the Nietzsche book of Bianca Nietzsche. <laughs> so I want to know actually how that one flowed into your life and how that's unfolding into what you're uh, doing now, if it is in fact, but you do talk about it as a really important book and Nietzsche's come up on this uh, podcast a bunch of times. So it's interesting to me to hear how that flows. <laughs> into you. Well, I have, it's funny because on this, you know, sort of tour for the book or whatever it is, podcast tour, um, I haven't really talked about any of the mystical, magical sides of stuff. If you've noticed, I keep it all real practical. You do, you know? yeah. Yeah. But that's it is on purpose because I really am trying to reach my black brothers and sisters who already think I'm a heathen demon, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, well, listen, you're talking to a gay porn star occultist um, now, so just let it all out on this. Podcast. No, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I know that that's how some black people think of me. And when I was releasing the book, I got really uptight and nervous about that. And then I went, Rachel, they already don't like you. It doesn't matter. Like nothing's different from yesterday to today. They just have more proof about why they don't like you. <laughs> and you've given it to them gift wrapped. But um, as far as Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, listen, when I was a kid, I think I was just very much drawn to the esoteric and, and, and uh, certainly not dark things, but the concept at four of good and evil. Wait, what? Good and evil. And I would say the importance of that book for me is that I had as a small child was like, there's so much gray in between, mm -hmm. you know, and I think as a kid to know there's so much gray in between because as a kid, you think it's good or it's bad. And I'm still a little like that. I'm still such a rule player. I'm just like, just tell me the rules, you guys. Uh, uh -huh. And I'll, I'll play by them. <laughs> and at a certain point, I realized there is no one who's perfectly great. Mm -hmm. There is no one who's all evil, right? So when we're talking about that particular book, 
I think everyone's going to get something different out of it, right? Because there's stuff about Nietzsche that I can't lean into, but then there's tons of stuff that I absolutely resonate about because it is very much self-empowering, is it not? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you. Uh-huh. You're the God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, I don't I mean, believe that, I'm the God, by the way, at all. You know, no, that does go into your high vibe, low vibe version. I, like, I, I do think that that flows into, you know, the book. And again, um, everybody, we're going to talk much more specifically about the book and the deck and writing and all that in a bit. But I just want to say, like, one of the aspects is that you have high vibe, low vibe. Like, you don't have the kind of inversion that people often do with the deck. So. Um, I think that that sounds like Nietzsche to me. That's that is a beyond yeah. good and evil principle in a way. It's like, well, Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when I first started doing tarot uh, as a kid, but then you know, like more seriously as a teen, I just first of all aesthetically, I just didn't like how the shit looked upside down. <laughs> because <laughs> uh-huh. no, I'm saying I'm being honest and saying I felt like I couldn't uh-huh. see the card. Part of me is a meditative aspect of looking at the reading, looking at the cards next to each other, looking at, is this face card facing someone or is it facing outside the reading? All these things, clues that the cards are giving. So aesthetically, I just didn't like it. Second of all, I just thought it was too black and white. It was, and people get so confused about reversals. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I thought, if you're going to write a book about a well-trodden subject too, you might as well bring something new to the table, right? So my goal with it was to say, okay, this is how I've always done it. it. If you don't resonate with this, that's fine. But by not doing the reversal, I'm forcing myself to dig into my own intuition more. And it's not that hard because if I get, if I'm sitting around today going, I wish I had a lover. I wish I had my, you know, I wish the man who loved me and wanted to stick around was here. And I pull a card out of the deck and it is the Empress, right? Mm-hmm. Well then, and I don't have all that. Then the energy isn't flowing. So I mm-hmm. prefer to think of it as flowing or not flowing, which is a mother piece kind of thing that I got from, right there. I'm the Empress too, which is so weird <laughs> in your own deck to be a card, but um, she even has my necklace. But so if I were to pull the Empress on a day when I'm feeling sad about not having a lover, so you might, that card, theoretically is is reversed right it's i'm not but it's not reversed the way that i think all it's saying to me is well rachel do you want to sit around and feel sad that you haven't gotten that thing or do you want to step into your high vibe empress energy Mm -hmm. so i kind Mm -hmm. of bypass the judgment of being in the low vibe of it and just kind of jump into what's okay i'm not feeling that energy if you're not you get the Ten of Pentacles and you're super struggling with money. Well, then it's reversed, isn't it? So you can either, and I don't, the reversal seems so final in a spread. So mm-hmm. when you put place it upside down. So my feeling was we leave it up, but you can tell energetically it's in low vibe. It's a call to action. You know, mm-hmm. that's what mm-hmm. it is. It's not an indictment. It is right. a it's call an oppor- to it's, an, it's, it's an opportunity in a lot of ways. And, and I think that, you know, it, it's interesting because I use always the Marseille deck, right? And it's not because I wouldn't ever, well, now I've been using your deck for the past, uh, since I got it basically, but, but I, but I use, but I use the Marseille. And one of the reasons why I use the Marseille is exactly what you talked about. It's so plain that it's so open and there's so much space to project, um, into it, but I mean that in a positive sense. Like it requires my involvement in a way that a deck like the Crowley deck is so, so overwhelming in its detail. Or there's some other decks to these angelic decks and Enochian decks and stuff that like actually my 
engagement with the Marseille requires a lot of involvement from myself. And so I, the reversals are, are in, well, first of all, the reversals are really hard with the Marseille because a lot of them look the same right side yeah. up as upside that down. That looks very but, similar, all the cars. Yeah, but, but, the, but the, it also is just like, well, I don't, I don't need to reverse any, like I actually need to be here with this card and be, be present with That's it. That's my thing is if you know the card meanings inside and out, then you don't really worry about reversals, to be honest, because right. I also am a huge fan of spreads. Like if the deck is your, this is a bad analogy, but if the deck is your car, then the spread is the roadmap of where you're going. And especially mm-hmm. if you're new to tarot, because if I pull the queen of cups, like I said, and it's in the position of me where I am right now, So that's one thing. But if it's pulled in the position of my subconscious desires, well, that's a whole nother level and layer to the card. Oh, but it's it's right across from, let's say, the devil. Now Mm -hmm. we're reading the cards all as a whole. Mm -hmm. And if I have the Empress, the Seven of Pentacles and the devil, you can probably be pretty sure that that Empress is reversed by looking at the cards around it as well without putting it in reversal because seven of pentacles is in the so soft deck uh failure i don't consider it that i think it's like that doldrummy patient state where you're working hard at something and you're bored (laughs) you're bored Uh of it you want the fruition it's not there yet so it's failure if you look at it as i don't have it yet but it's well on its way so it's all about how you put the cards together. So Empress with seven of pentacles, there's a, maybe a bit of lack around that. What is the next card? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all, it is a story you're telling, but it must be, be gr- uh, uh, grounded in something because I've noticed, I hate to sound like everyone's old, you know, get off my lawn, but when, you know, a lot of people hit me up and, and said, or they'll say on their own posts, like her definitions are different than what I know. I'm assuming you learned off YouTube then. Because my definition, my interpretations are very mm. close to traditional writer weight. Mm. And so mm. I'm seeing that a lot of people, now I understand you didn't study writer weight. A lot of people don't study, they just do it intuitively. But my feeling is if you can look at a traditional thing by Mary Kay Greer or a book like mine and say, I those are wrong, maybe you need to examine where you've been learning. Well, from. it's it, the, the, the idea that you would say that somebody's version of it was wrong because you had your other fixed version of it seems really, that seems wrong to me, right? It's, like it's I, a little narrow-minded because I want to yeah. synthesize everybody's interpretations and see what resonates, frankly. And that's why I call them interpretations, not definitions, because there is always something that can be added that is true because today the mm. modern tellers on uh, on social media consider the page of swords to be the they're spying on you on social media card now uh-huh. i'll buy that there's you know we need new modern interpretations for the cards right they don't have social media um then but i'm not 100 percent sure because pages are about messages they've mm. always been about mm. a message so if someone's spying on you that's not actually a message is it that's energy exchange but it's not a message so I don't know. Sometimes I see, I don't disagree with them, but I also see like the four of cups to me, which is someone offering you a cup. Someone's eye is on you and you're like, oh, maybe not. So (laughs) that to me is more of a spot, you know, someone's eye and attention is on you that you are. I'm not saying they're wrong, though. What I'm saying is I'll buy the page of swords, but I also see a lot of card slingers, Mm -hmm. not tarot practitioners, Mm -hmm. you know, card slingers making money off tarot, which is fine. But kind of bending things to suit a very now way. And I believe in synthesizing the old school ways with the now, you know, just like if you're going to learn watercolor, you got to learn some technique. 
So, yeah, well, I think, I think for me, like a lot of it has to do with, you know, and, and this is getting really into like what the tarot is like for me, you know, I always, I view the deck as an anatomy, like it, it has an anatomy. And when, in the same way, when you look at a person, if someone serves you their ankle, it's a lot different than if they're looking into your eyes, than if they send you a dick pic, than if they're like kissing (laughs) your hand, than if they're giving you the finger. So I view this whole composite as like certain parts are being shown and they're interacting with your mood and desire to see certain aspects of this being that's revealing itself to you. So when I learned the way I taught myself to read tarot was, I mean, it really, it's unfair a little bit. Like I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to anybody else, but because I had done a lot of spiritual development work on my own before I really even tried in a real way to learn the tarot, it was put the card down. What do I actually see? How do I respond to this? And that's it. And and then then I begin to assist myself with learning what the meanings are and all that sort well, of stuff. But I, that's actually what I talk about in my book, isn't yes. it? And I've and I've had people push back on me for that. And yeah. I'm like, hey man, you do <laughs> you. Because my theory right. is you don't don't you get my deck, let's say you pull out a card, you don't know anything about tarot, just look at the card. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look at it, feel it, and know too that on this particular day you have this reaction to the card. But a week yeah. from now, or a year from now, you might have a completely different reaction to the card. Like I used and to, and your really eyes will like, be drawn. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but your eyes will be drawn to different places on the card, different images on the card, right? So when you were talking before, this I'm just interrupting just to make a point about what you yeah, yeah. said before. Like when you were talking before about like, well, when it's in the spread, this relates to this in that way. It's like when you read a poem, the thing that's so disruptive and powerful about a poem is that you have words that are placed in new kinds of orders that begin to shake up and undo the way you felt about the words, the cadence, the spaces. What happens when you put a pause between words is a lot different than when you just say it straight, right? So when you're laying these cards out, they create a certain kind of relationship that has a disruptive or rupturing effect on you because you hadn't seen them that way before. Now, if you decide to do a reading and you kept getting the same spread reading day in and day out for like days and days and days, which actually I know somebody that that's happened to, then- Okay, then I get that maybe you would start thinking there's a fixity of meaning and expression that's coming to you. But otherwise, you're receiving a poem that has a disruptive effect on how you see the world. And right, how you it changes. But, but we're yeah. always becoming. We are in a constant state of becoming, right? So right. we never really land on one thing either is the truth. Like that exactly. has now shifted your reality, that card, and it'll shift in a different way. The next time you see it. But listen, mm. I'm a fan of this is my truth for tarot. I'm a fan of doing that. But then I'm a huge fan of then looking up the card right. because that to me is the best way to synthesize the meanings. You do it yourself. You look at it. You get a feel for it. What's it telling me? What's it telling me on this particular day? I don't know what it is. Now I'm going to go look it up and I'm going to see. Oh, because it probably is going to add something. I agree. Yeah. No, no matter whose interpretation, no matter what book you're looking at, it's going to add something to what you saw in that card. And so I like to do both because that's an easier way to learn them. I also talk about it in the book an actor's way, because, you know, we hold emotions and feelings and energy in our body and we vibrate with that. And so, you know, if you can attach a feeling 
rather right. than I'm going to memorize this like actors do. The last thing an actor does is memorize the lines. We're mm -hmm. working on all the emotional stuff up until then. So I'm kind of saying, don't worry about the memorizing, you know, try to figure out what is this card really saying? Because then you will innately you'll you'll synthesize the meaning because you right. actually understand it rather than learning by rote. Yeah. The reason why that's so important, the way you're talking about it is because there's an active process of expansion and then a sort of contractive static process. So it becomes a bit like breathing. So when you, you when you look at the cards and you um, allow them to be what you see in them, and then you go from there and look at their sort of defined meaning. Right. That again, it's like, you know, what? another reason why I say the anatomy thing is because time isn't linear. And when people read the cards as if they're presenting a linear version of time, like this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, rather than what am I in the presence of right now? So that's why I say anatomy. I'm in the presence of a being yeah. that's revealing itself to me to impart a message. And so when I get that, and, and, and so what happens is I can sort of breathe in and out with that being by interpreting Ooh. the thing that I see and then looking at the meanings that have been given before. By and I'm going to interrupt you to say one of the best things you just said there, you said many good things, but one was being present because, yeah. you know, even if you only do a tarot reading for two minutes out of your busy day with your kids and your life and stuff, you have to be present mm -hmm, <laughs> for mm -hmm. those two minutes, you know? Uh, and I think the trick though with tarot and anything is our own projections, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, again, if I was in, I'm not in this space, but if I was in a space of, I, I'm so worried about this guy, this thing, this situation. I might imbue all that onto a reading instead of listening right. to the reading, right? So I'm very big on, you're just starting out with tarot and you're doing a spread, let's say a big spread, right? It's a 10 card, 11 card spread. Clock how many pentacles are there. Mm -hmm. Clock mm -hmm. how many cups are there. Clock how many swords are there. Start to see the patterns, just like there's patterns in the way the birds fly and life and all of that. There's patterns in the reading. And if I'm all all consumed about a love relationship, but it's nothing but pentacles, right? I'm going to have to go, wait, how is this obsession affecting my physical world now? Because it might not, you know, I have to yeah. start dissecting and being able to take away my desire. So I'll go through stages too, where if I can't put down my desire, I'll just stop doing readings for a while. That's the truth. And, and speak with myself about why I can't put down this desire. Um, or just be honest, like the person who's going into your Instagram DMs and be like, I'm reading into this what I want to read into it right now. And that's just how it is. And I might be wrong, but at least I know that like I'm learning something about the contours of what I want by looking at these images. It might sure. not give you the most accurate thing, but at least it'll give you an honest <laughs> experience of what you've put down, you know, or if, more you're, if you're open to it. Right. Like right. I said, it's exactly. a million ways to bullshit your... <laughs> I have seen terror. Listen, I you have seen people bullshit. I've bullshitted myself with readings. Um, but I've also seen a lot. I've also seen a lot of this is why I'm harsh on the tubers, to be honest, because I've seen a lot of people pull like the ten of swords, the the three of swords, and you know, like the 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 ten of wands and be like, they're they're coming back to you, they're thinking of nothing but you. I don't see that in those cards, you know. I see that it's over. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. But there's no there's no, there's no ongoing thing for you to come back to my YouTube channel. If I constantly tell you the truth, is there, if I give you <laughs> false hope uh -huh. every week that they're coming back, you're going to come back. So I think the, the commerce that is, I'm working on a proposal for my second book and I am going to address a little, not so much YouTube, but just 
you know, now that it's so popular, it is a mess with commerce, right? So mm. all of this stuff, especially tarot. And, you know, I had some a little girl said, oh, my God, I can't believe celebrities are getting into tarot to leave it for us. And I was like, little girl, I've been into this shit before you was born, <laughs> way before the craft. But I understood <laughs> her sentiment, you know, a little bit. I did, which is, oh, it's trendy now. So people are jumping on the bandwagon and people assume with me, like, it's because you in the craft. No, I craft, I craft came to me. Right. I was well, it's, it's something I said in the intro, which was um, that, you know, I was I had that prejudice of, about you. Right. Like we met we met at, um, you know, our friend Alec Mappa's oh, yeah, party. Yeah. Right. And um, and I and I think like that fake what, witch that's when you t- <laughs> when you told me <laughs> no, that well, it was more when you told me you did tarot my impression and that you were going to wanted to write a book about tarot, right. That my impression was, Oh, like she's been asked to do this. Cause you know how Hollywood is. It's like you do a movie about like candy corn and people will be like, write a book about a memoir about candy corn. Right. So yeah. I, I, so that was my thought. And then when we sat down and started talking about it, I was like, Holy shit. Like, and that's why, I mean, I've never had anybody on the show talk about tarot before. And it's why I knew it had to be you because the depth, depth of your ability to read is so profound. I mean, when people, when people experience the reading with you, it's, it's no joke. Tell them about the hardcore event I did with you, because it's like one thing to read for your friends, right? Yourself, your friends, but to read for other people. And listen, if there's anyone listening who wants to read for other people and charge money, you can't be reading out of the fucking book. Know your stuff. (laughs) That's my number one rule with that. Like, I can't, I can't when someone pull, I just can't. I'm I'm not having it when you pull out the book. You're not ready yet. Doesn't mean you won't be, but you're not right. ready yet. But mm-hmm. Connor invited me to do um an esoteric event with, you know, it was like hardcore people. And I bring up this event because there was a couple who came in and they wanted to be read together, right? Uh-huh. And there's obviously a warlock and his lady and 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 um I remember this. I just That's didn't right. want to. The guy was really controlling with his energy, and I was like, no. I want to read you separately. So I put that boundary down. And then the guy was trying to mind meld me the whole time like this. And I literally was like, keep on trying, brother. Keep on trying. <laughs> keep on. I'm just, just uh, I, you think, because I knew, I was like, he probably thinks I'm a TV witch. He doesn't understand that I feel everything you're throwing at me, motherfucker. <laughs> right? And I gave him a good reading. Because that was, it, it wasn't, it was an interesting event when you're uh, someone who does tarot because you know, it's one thing to read for um, laymen, right? But we're talking about people who, in the world, who know. But I was confident. Like, I know, uh, I know my abilities, you know, mm-hmm. at least with that. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why it was fun to lean into it. Because in the end, you know, you have a career as an actor and you're nothing but insecure your entire career. You know this to be true, mm-hmm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. it's just designed that way that you are in a constant panic attack the whole time. Right. So uh, this was one thing I was like, nobody can nobody can say I'm not pretty enough. Nobody can say, uh, if only you've gotten a nose job, Rachel, or why is your ass this big? Or, you know, whatever it is. Like, this is something I know. Right. I know I know. Uh-huh. So it feels really good to be able to share that with other people. Yeah, it comes through. I mean, it's it's when that it's when that uh, the movement of the uh, of, of the relationship with the cards and that and that card being that stack, it starts to come through, and you know that it's that it's honest. You know that it's real, and that you have been working on refining your relationship with it for most of your life. You know, so I think I think that that's 
it really comes through when you do a reading and, you know, definitely there'll be in the show notes and stuff, a link to your Patreon and, and all that kind of stuff or where you offer. Well, it's also, readings, but. it's also, re- I, you know, I do read, um, I, I don't read publicly for people anymore at all. I read on my, I do read for people on my Patreon yeah. more as a way to show them this is how you read for people, but that's the only space I do it. Um, mostly because to be a hundred percent honest, I'm not necessarily like feeling during a pandemic, uh, to take on the the collective consciousness of pain of the world, you know, Mm. but that's why I wrote the book because my feeling is you could go to someone for a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. And, and if I were to do a reading for someone, I'm way more, you can't afford me is the truth. Um, Mm -hmm. but you can get the book and learn how to do it yourself and never have to spend money for mm-hmm. someone else. You can learn mm-hmm. to do it yourself and self-soothe and comfort yourself at 2 a.m. You can learn to be the cool friend who now doesn't call and vomit all your shit all over your friends when you're in the middle of the panic attack. You mm-hmm. can use the tarot. <laughs> no, but really, I mean this. And I'm saying that because mm-hmm. I think I used to be that person. So I'd be very reactionary. Something would happen. And I would talk to my friends about it in the middle of the panic, which is just asking someone to live in the spin and minutiae of my brain. Unfair. Mm-hmm. So I try to calm down cool down with tarot first so that when I go and speak with someone and I'm asking for advice, maybe about something, but I'm common. We're we're having conversation about it where I can actually hear them. It's not listen to my pain. So it's a gift. You can, it's a gift that keeps on giving to be a hundred percent (laughs) honest. No, but it's, I mean, I agree. We're better friends, you know, and beyond beyond that, yes, you can use tarot to divine and, and tell your future. What I do think for newbies is when you're doing a reading, just know that it's nothing is really set in stone. Even if you get a major arcana in the last position, what it's saying is if you continue on your path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if it's a great last card, amazing, continue on your path. You're going to get to that sun card at the end. But let's say it's a shitty card at the end. It's saying if you keep doing this, this will. So you have power to adjust. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the best part that you can change and circumvent upcoming things you may or may not want, or you can call in things that you want. Or, you know, for me, I like to use it to, to soothe sometimes because uh, like a lot of people, I have different issues from my childhood that pop up. Oh, I was in foster care. Maybe there's some abandonment stuff there, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And no matter how much I think I've healed it, it still will come creeping up. So then I can use tarot to dissect it. Be here now, like Ram Dass says, be present in the moment, because most of us are, you know, when we're, we're, we're looking at the past and depression about what we wanted to change, we're literally trying to go back in time and change something that already happened that is out of our control. So to a certain extent, it's ego now in the present. Yeah. I you mean, know what I, I mean? Yeah. I think, I think when, when people come to me, when I'm doing a reading for someone and it looks like it's bad for what they want. I do always try to reassert the sovereignty and the strength of the individual to actually achieve what it is that they want. And I think that that's part of it is when, like what you're saying is there's always an option there. There's always an option. And I think um, that it's, you know, when we lay out the, uh, when we dissect it, when we lay out the organs of the, uh, of the thing that's in front of you, of the thing that's developing, we can say, look, um, this is what you really need to watch out for. And I can have the intuition that that person's not going to look out for that, like that they're just not going to do it. But I always also want to reassert 
the option for that person to overcome what's before them. Yeah. No, that's the whole point is to figure out how to overcome the thing, not to just accept your faith that it's this and that's that it's right. It's like, I don't want to, yeah. To go back to what you were saying before, like I don't want to give a victim reading to a person either. Like I don't want to give something to somebody that says, this is how it is. No way out. Totally unhealable, totally uncurable. And I know that there are people who read tarot that want to do that. They want to be like the, hard ass that's like, sorry, just not going to go your way. And to me, that's a reinforcement. It, it's just as bad as the person that's like, everything's going to be great when in fact- I think, you know what, you know, it, I think I split the difference because if I see that it's absolutely <laughs> not going to go my way or someone else's way, I will say, maybe not right now. <laughs> right. Read it you again know, tomorrow. Like, <laughs> like a little qualifier, a little bit, but if yeah. it's a reading where it's like dead in the water, I'm going to tell someone, it's, you know, I'm probably going to do another spread to say, where should this person's focus be? Right. What do you right? want to be so thinking can, about? Right. So we can end on a positive. So it's a positive, like, cause if it's not this thing they want the job, the person that's a dead end, I'm going to do another spread to go, okay, what the fuck is coming for them then? What is theirs? Because they're looking at something that's not theirs. So the other thing about mm. doing readings is if you're going to do more than one in a row, a big spread, do it in tandem in conversation. Meaning Mm -hmm. I do a spread. I'm doing a general spread. What's happening with me today? Oh, something about that spread has either delighted or triggered me, right? Mm -hmm. Things are going or not going. So then if I'm going to throw another spread, that is when I would say, okay, I need to, this one thing, this area, whether it is energetically was, was off the wands energy was maybe weird here. Now I'm going to do another spread and say, what is it? What is it I need to work with in that wands energy? So it's a conversation. The spreads, not a second spread to say, I didn't like that first spread. Give me a better one. That shit don't, doesn't work. You just get confused, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have to take in the first one and do it in tandem with the next one. And then in tandem with the third one, if you're going to do that, you cannot just ignore the first spread because you didn't like what it said. Can can we like I want to talk about your book, your deck specifically, and I know um there's there's a story in here. So just for people who haven't gotten this yet, first of all, get it because it's great. But um there's a story for each uh major arcanas uh major arcana card. And one of the ones that was the most exciting to me is a one um, for the strength card where actually you became the card. And I think that this is something in general I'd like to talk about a little bit more after you read, but it's like we do become and evoke the presence of the cards in our posturing, in our images, in our lives, once we bring the cards into our lives in a way. And I find that very profound. It's not something that people almost ever talk about, but you (laughs) wrote about it in here. And that's why I want you to read this one, the strength card. So would you read that? Would you read that for us? Oh, sure. Michelle T. Do you know her? Mm -hmm. She, uh, lovely, um, did her podcast, Fabulous Woman. She had written a book where she very loosely you know, tied in tarot with her life, very different uh, than mine. But I had thought that was really well done and um, interesting, you know, Mm -hmm. to relate it more to life. But I wanted to do a more traditional just tarot, tarot book. So we decided to put the memoiry personal essays. I'm trying to find the strength card (laughs) um, in there because I just thought, you know, people get stuff by experience, don't they? Mm -hmm. You, You learn 
from someone else's tale, if you're interested in listening to it, you learn from it, from their foibles and their high points. And to be honest, Connor, filleting myself in these essays wasn't fun because I kept thinking about all my friends who've written like a memoir book or a comedic memoir, and they don't have to comment on it. They can just say this happened, period. I'm telling, this is the story. This is what happened, period, without any self-reflection. The whole point to a tarot book was having to reflect on these, how the energy affected me and then cop to it. Not that fun, but you know, I, I <laughs> re-evoked um, every time the card appears for you when you do a reading. So exactly. That's yeah. So I really understand that Dorothy Parker quote. Um, I love, uh, I love, I hate writing. I love having written on the strength card. If you guys know, on the traditional writer weight is a woman with uh, a saline similar to my card, and um, it, it signifies. You know, just just having a little control over our inner animus nature that would destroy us if we let it completely roam free. But but the, and and having that be in subjugation to us, but being um, peace, you know, integrated, as Carl Jung would say. So anyway, a year after my sitcom Half and Half went off the air, I got an offer for a film shooting in South Africa. My intuition told me nobody was ever going to see this thing. And truth be told, no one ever did. But the opportunity was impossible to pass up. I love traveling, especially on someone else's dime. And the thought of acting on foreign soil was intriguing. My first South African shock was seeing brown skin on 90% or more of the people I saw on television. We were everywhere on shows and billboards, hosting news programs and starring in Harley Davidson commercials. It was a joy to see. Half and Half was running on South African network television, and I was getting recognized a lot on the street. On the first day, I went out with the 10 or so American Black actresses, and I was fully mobbed in a way that never happens in the States. The attention did not engender warmer, fuzzy feelings towards me from the ladies. One of the women, it turns out, had tested for the role of my mother and seemed a little too delighted to spread the information that she and I were around the same age. Typically, actresses don't talk age or money details with random co-stars they've just met. She broke protocol in an ob obvious effort to dominate the herd. I'm proud I didn't give in to my baser instincts. Instead of saying something sweet and sugary like, I know, right? Have you always played older your whole career? Or are you, And you still didn't get the part? But by the time the film wrapped, everybody, including myself, is homesick. But the producers made me an offer to stay longer and travel with a guide to do a lion safari in Zimbabwe for some extra filming. I had to do it. At the enormous no hunting animal preserve, the lions roam wild and have limited contact with humans once they're grown. We have a saying here, my guide divulged somberly, we don't fuck with the lions and they don't fuck with us. Several workers were buzzing about having seen my sitcom and I was told I was going to be given a special tour with close up access to the lions while the groups got safety. Look, even minor celebrity has its perks, but usually in the form of free hand creams and decent restaurant tables. But is extra danger really a star benefit? The Pride took a water buffalo down yesterday. They shouldn't be too hungry, said a tranquilizer gun holding park ranger in what I think was meant to be a reassuring tone. I had an epiphany that the word should is opaque in its vagueness. We traveled down a dusty path, sandy reddish soil caking my sneakers. I want to applaud Mother Nature because I didn't see the first lioness until we were in striking distance from the tree she lounged under. The rangers greeted her and encouraged me to get closer, though I noticed they weren't moving in themselves. It's okay, you can go. 
they're wild, but come here when they were young and mostly don't see us as prey. But don't make any sudden movements, okay? These are not your average house cats, people. They may purr, lick, and lick your hand and roll around like a kitty, but this lioness was minimum three times the size of the monster Rottweiler that terrorizes my neighborhood. Her liquid gold gray eyes remained trained on me as I approached. I noticed her ears weren't laid flat back. A sure sign a cat of any sign feels uncomfortable. Instead, she seemed curious and sniffed me as I ever so slowly crouched next to her and looked into the eyes of a badass wild beast. The air felt electric and dangerous, but she looked at me calmly, which in turn calmed my fears. It occurred to me that this very scene was a literal strength card moment and the sort of thing an ancestor of mine might have done many, many moons ago. The ginormous male was a solid 400 pounds of master of the universe, King Lion vibe. I seemed to fall in step with him in relative ease as we crossed the plains. In the end, he was a ladies' man, nuzzling and licking me, which I took as an invite to join his pride. I declined. His fur was softer than I imagined. His mane was glorious massive tangles, and his face eclipsed mine to an almost lily-putten stature. My nerves remained on fire, but steady in a manner. I ch- but steady in a manner I still try to emulate when under stress. To commune with a lion, you must become a lion. It felt like an out-of-body experience, my own personal version of walking on live coals. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to peacefully coexist with these glorious beasts, kings and queens of their domain, beings who hopefully recognize a strong kindred spirit. By releasing my fear and finding my courage, I was living the vibe of the strength card. I know that if I was a mother, I wouldn't have let a wild lion lick me with their sandpaper tongue, and there's no way I'd do it again. Living the strength card means knowing when you're being courageous and when you're pushing your luck. The trick is walking the line in between. You you know what's crazy to me? All I know, Connor, and you're an author too, is, oh my God, they cut so much out of that essay. (laughs) (laughs) Like I had to, um, you know, the hard part of writing this book was to put the interpretations in a hundred words or less for the minor cards and having the essays. Like I wrote 5,000 word essays, you know, Mm -hmm. that were cut down to 1,200 words. I hope I hope one day that you'll be able to make some of those available. I mean, I really love all the stories and I think pe- people can just hear like the connectivity there again of you in actually embodying what's on the card. And I think that that's something that's really important for people to consider is when you look at a tarot card, you can feel yourself into it. And sometimes it will show up in your life. And so you have the strength moment, which is a kind of smaller moment of restraining yourself and not being totally horrible um, because some other people are being horrible around you, right? And then you have this moment where it actually shows up as the image that's on the card. The literal image. Exactly. And I think that I spent the whole night before praying I wouldn't get my period, by the way. (laughs) Because you can't do it if you're on your period. (laughs) okay (laughs) right so the moon card um so the so so the so you don't want to get the moon before the strength card basically you don't not when you're going to play with lions Uh. (laughs) but um you know i want to say you know uh, well first of all i wanted to have you read from the book because it's a great it's just a great book and 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 just your language in it is um yeah, it's direct, but it's friendly, you know, and I, and I really, I really appreciate that about your book. It's not, um, some books are very, they're hyper detailed, they're hyper austere. Sometimes you get the little pamphlets and they say almost nothing about the deck, 
but there's a lot in here and it is like you said it's very revealing well i wanted to find a nook and cranny where i could fit in because again if you want austere and um not harder to parse, but more, you know, you need more, a little more intellect to understand what they're saying. I think it's 78 degrees of wisdom by Rachel Pollack is an amazing book. It's a little tough on newbies, I think. Right. But it's an amazing book. Uh, And you can, you have the little pamphlet that came with your deck. So I Mm -hmm. wanted to find a niche in between, which was what would I, you know, I thought what kind of book would I have liked when I was first studying how can I break this system down in a way where it doesn't seem arcane and out of reach or, mm-hmm. you know, nothing? Uh, and that's why I thought, OK, I'm going to talk about the numbers of the cards because the energy each card has carries a number. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, strength card, oddly enough, you know, uh, in different decks can be switched around. I believe uh, they switch it sometimes with justice. Isn't strength is eight. Correct. Yeah. Eight. Yeah. So in some decks, it'll be 11 and justice uh, switched around. I followed the traditional one though, but eight is a number energetically. um, Like I have a section in the book where I say by the numbers so that even if you've never even held a tarot card before, right. But you Mm. know, the word strength is on that card. And the number eight means movement, redirection, hard work, psychic dreams, energy, karmic, you know, uh, changes, strength. It's all part in there. So if you pull the eight of swords, you know, without even knowing what a sword is, but you know, swords are mind and air and you pull an eight, it's psychic mm. stuff, karmic energies, you know, things coming at you. You don't even have to look up the whole interpretation. And now the number has helped you out. There's a million ways. They're not shortcuts. They are ways, just other ways. And of, and, of and they'll have their own meanings, right? Like the strength card is always really profound for me because I was born yeah. on August 23rd, which is the cusp day between Leo and Virgo. And both of those are present on the card. It's the cusp yeah. day on the card. And it's an eight card, which is the eight, August is the eighth month of the year, right? So That's right. You, you begin to see all these different things in relation to yourself as you, right? And it's also the Lemnus gate uh, that's above the magician's head, right? In the yeah. beginning of the deck. So you, you begin to, to see the sequence and everything exactly it it can just go on and on and so in your deck you know something that's really i mean the people that i've shown this deck to they all say the same thing which is my impression at least at first which is they're like the color the color is so stunning and i do think that that's true like the presence of color in this deck it's so lively and there's all this like um floral presence there's the presence of birds there are so many birds how about the eyes too there's a lot of eyes a lot of eyes and eyes eyes. on birds you know and so there's this real active quality to this deck just by looking at it whereas like i said i use the marseille the marseille doesn't feel active it feels very like you're looking at oh i see what you're you're looking at wood i see what you're saying you know what i mean there's a time and a place though where you want i think a reading with an on you know what i'm saying there's of course of course but one of the things that's so special about yours is the flowing movement the constant Stephanie singleton the artist did a a lovely job with it and um with the colors and stuff um i love pop art you know i really wanted Mm -hmm. a pop art purely pop art uh before we hired the artist but i realized this was a good way to go Uh, again i wanted the deck to feel warm and inviting i have a lot of decks that scare the fuck out of me when i first Mm -hmm. got them because they're heavy or I have a lot of decks where I can tell the creator was depressed mm. when they were creating them. You know, I would say some of the, the popular decks in the last 10 years, I'm like, 
I know. I can, I feel how you're, it feels like it was raining the whole time you created this. Doesn't mean it's not a great and effective deck. It is just heavier. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I'm not knocking it. What I'm saying, it has yeah. a heavier feeling. So I might pull that out. Have you ever been in a shitty mood? And sometimes you're like, I'm going to do something shittier just to indulge this uh, shitty of course. mood. <laughs> right. So yeah, we, you know, just going for it. So sometimes I really will, or like I'll pull out. I'm like, no, nah, I want it fucking brutal. Give it to me, Crowley. Tell mm-hmm. me it's failure. Mm-hmm. Tell me it's brutal. Tell me it's over. You know, mm-hmm. not that that deck is as simple as that. That deck is misdirected and, and has miscues in it and all these different, that deck is very deep, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily a deck. I gravitate towards all the time that mm-hmm. one. So what I wanted was a deck where if you're like, but I don't know, my mom says the church, I'm like, mm. your mom can't say anything about this deck and it's butterflies and it's flowers. Well, that's not exact. That's not exactly true. There are some cards in here that strike me, even if the meaning is not necessarily frightening, the image has a sure. real intensity. Like Life there's is- the eight of, there's the eight of swords card, which is like, it's basically, it's like a, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a person, uh, you know, it looks maybe a woman, but it, th- this person has like Cthulhu like hair reaching like tentacles down to touch each sword as it floats completely black and opaque tied up in ribbons above the ground so there are images wait (laughs) let me tell you check out how i came up with the concept for that hair because i almost i wrote a second book up basically for the artist i would write Mm -hmm. up and pull artwork and pull reference stuff and write up a whole second book that i would you know have the send to the publishers and the publishers would send to her but I came up with the eight of swords because that octopus shape of the hair, the Cthulhu shape, like you said, if you look, if you look at it closely, that person on the eight of swords card is only connected to those swords by this little tiny kadink of hair. Mm-hmm. That's all that's mm-hmm. tying that person down. Mm-hmm. And um, I listen, I'm a lady. I'm vain. I'll admit it. And I like my hair. And my hair was really, really long. It was like long for me. And it all fucking broke off. Mm-hmm. And I had to cut it all off and I had been reticent to cut it off because I was like, okay, these little tiny shitty split ends give me length though. And I thought, isn't mm-hmm. that an analogy for life? Because the eight of swords is being tied to maybe a mentally distressing situation. So, you know, you're tied to a situation that you probably would benefit from, from leaving from, and you could leave it really easily in the traditional card. The person has bandages around their eyes, but one eye is showing like they, you could choose to leave. So in mine, I wanted this figure with like, if you would just give up the last little tiny bits of your split end girl, you could fly away to a healthier place. <laughs> You're making me that- realize how important hair is in this deck. Like <laughs> then when you move on to the nine of swords, it's someone who has a mohawk of swords stabbing their head, yeah. which is contains the spaghetti monster of centipedes and, and, uh, and worms. I, I love this card. We went through a lot of iterations on this card, but I love what Stephanie came up with in the end, because like you said, it's a mohawk of swords, which is anxiety, right? The other thing mm-hmm. I love about the nine of swords part is, it's trying like I used to hate that card and fear it. Now I'm like, no, no, it's not to fear. It's just saying whatever, whatever you're thinking, whatever your anxiety is, is worse than the actuality. You know, like uh-huh. for me, I hate doing the dishes, right? So if fucking feeling around not doing them is worse <laughs> than the 10 minutes it takes to do them. Do you know what uh-huh. I'm saying? And now check out the nine of discs. Mm. This chick has no hair whatsoever mm-hmm. and uh i'll give stephanie uh credit here because she drew this bald figure first the nine of pentacles represents someone who is single comfort comfortable has enough they're not even they're not even me going where's my husband they're mm-hmm. fine on their own 
And uh, she drew that figure without hair. And I was like, let me put some hair on it. And then she put on some fair faucet hair that I hate. <laughs> so I was like, wait, no, your original concept is better because this per there are people who either are bald by choice or have alopecia, right? Or bald. And the goal would be, that's fine. You don't need fucking hair, right? <laughs> you don't need it. You're satisfied uh -huh, as you uh -huh. are. You are That chick is beautiful on the mm -hmm. nine of pentacles without any hair. She's not lacking in anything. So uh, mm -hmm. I think the artist's initial, initial, you know, interpretation of that with no hair really worked. But yeah, hair is... Listen, hair is your crown. You have a thick old head of hair. You know you fucking love it. No. And, um, so, you know. But, I, but I, that is, I, yeah. Go ahead. As Sorry. I've gotten older, I've had to let go of the ego around my hair, though, trust me. Because, well, you know. I, yeah. I mean, I love that you are you have a hair subplot in the movie that you're best known for. But but I think that, <laughs> um, but I think that there's like a, you know, I mean, the thing with the thing with the deck it's like, okay, so people can't necessarily, they can't see right now without buying the deck, all the images that we're talking about. But something that I think is really important is for people to hear how that process played out when you're actually developing these images for the deck. So like when I'm looking at the moon card, you know, so for people, if you can't see it right now, that's fine. But around the moon in Rachel's deck is Metatron's cube. And in the water, in, rather than the crustaceans, we have these amoeba-like creatures floating around in the water and bacterial sort of primordial soup. And we have the wolf and then we have a dog that has a collar on. And it's just, it's so rich. And there's just, this, the imagery is at once familiar and also startlingly new at the well, same time. Well, there are time. some that are much closer. We A few I wanted to leave as homage uh, to Pamela Coleman Smith, you know, Pixie, mm -hmm. who did, did the artwork on the original writer Wait uh, deck. I wanted some that were an homage to her. And that one is closer to the original. But yes, I wanted in some little hints to mysticism and things in there because out of, you know, when we're talking about the moon card, right? Mm -hmm. It, it, it to me in the highest vibe is is the unknown in our psychic energy and what I love about the night like I love I'm a night owl like I, I'm up all night that's when I do my best work writing wise things like that and it's also I think I love it because it's your time mm -hmm. no usually no one else around mm -hmm. the sounds are lower no one can call and bother me it is mine so um, it's a great time for getting in touch with what is right there. It's right mm -hmm. there, the unknown. Everything, it's right there out of the corner of your eye. It's a great, it's the perfect time to catch those things that are normally only in the corner of your eye, but they're front and center. And the moon tells you that energy is present. Now, in its worst sense, it's lunacy. <laughs> You're mm -hmm. mad, you know, and uh, depressed and, and lost, you know, in the ether. Uh, so, it's a it's finding the balance because we can go down an esoteric path and trip off right and become completely disinterested in society and what is around us because none of this is important <laughs> do you, do you feel like the cards as you were trying to design your own do you feel like they they the ones that you had looked at before you made your deck right because this is the challenge of anybody who has to make their own deck, um, which is something that a lot of magic practitioners are are asked to do and and end up not completing, but you completed this. Do you feel like the cards were sort of 
Did they haunt you? Did they reach out to you? Did they ask you to complete the task in a certain way? Like that's why I was fixating on Metatron's cube and the moon card. It's like, were were you just seeing that? Was it appearing in your unconscious or, or just with any of the cards, we don't have to fixate. I think I feel, and I hear things, you know, when people talk about, um, Clear audience and clear visual and different things like that. And I would mm-hmm. say I'm clear audience, right? I'll hear a sentence. I'll hear a whisper. Like mm-hmm. it sounds like rustling leaves sort of. And then it's usually that's my intuition or that's my higher self telling me something. So that happened quite often, you know, okay, we're doing the swords now. Now I got to think about the suit of swords and what I want them to be. And so I would sit and meditate on them. Mm. You know, like the original card and various cards from decks and things and meditate on it. And then I would just go with the intuitive hit. Because like I said, with the eight of swords card, that was very visceral. Got to cut off all your hair. Right. But that's Mm. so basic. Would that make a good card? But I thought, yes, yes, it would, because it's an analogy. It's it's analogy for letting go of something. Right. Mm. That we hold dear that is no longer serving us. Um, It came out of different thought patterns. I mean, some I just knew this is what I want this to be. Other ones I was inspired as I was doing research for the cards. Um, Mm. I would say I love this deck. I wanted I was supposed to have another pass at putting more mystical things in that were supposed to be layered in. So Mm. it was a little bit of a bummer to me that there weren't more of those things put in. But at the same time, I think there's enough and there's enough layers in there that someone who is a beginner can get mm-hmm. something out of it. And someone who is more experienced like you or other people can also see mm-hmm. the levels and layers to the cards. So I'm pretty mm-hmm. happy with its usability. And that to me is the most important thing because we've all bought decks that aren't usable, you mm-hmm. know, like you mm-hmm. just can't read with them. <laughs> they may be pretty or this or that or art based, but they don't make great decks. And so I'm really pleased that this makes a very readable deck. It's very readable. And I want people to know that, you know, I, I'm right now I'm looking at the four of cups card and the two of disc card. So. Oh yeah. You know, What's and, that inspired by? What's and, the four of cups inspired by? The little prince, right? That's yeah. right. So, so, but um, <laughs> where it's someone oh, like. Oh, and on that card, by the way, if you notice, there are people figures, you know, real people, uh, all different shades, but then there's also a parcel of shadow people. And it yeah. is usually around the cards that require a little shadow work. Mm-hmm, That's, mm-hmm. you know, eight of swords, it requires some shadow work to let go of something. Four of cups, someone's offering us something we don't want, a little shadow work in, in being truthful. Do we not want it because it's being offered and we don't want anyone who offers us anything. We only want what is unattainable. You know what I'm saying? It, it requires us to look into those aspects. So, of so what I was saying is like the, the, you know, one of the things I really appreciate is that when I'm looking at these two cards, there's a lot of open space on the card. So uh, in other words, like while you're saying, oh, it would be great to have added in all these other things. I think sometimes, you know, um, having too many places for the eye to travel around the card can make a reading really difficult um, when you are trying to actually sort of evoke a feeling because there's no breathing room for the person that's reading or, or for the person that's looking into it. So, you know, the two of discs is two basically ballerinas on tight ropes 
over top this like open space with that sort of um, mitosis of the two coins or the two discs sort of pulling apart in the lemnus gate. And I think that, um, and again, I realize that not every, maybe this is frustrating for people for me to be describing the cards when they can't see them, but one, just get the deck. But two, also, (laughs) I think it's really important to talk about the processes because before these were on the cards, these were images that appeared to Rachel. These were and a coherence of images that begin to form around a card in the deck. And I find that really profound and fascinating. It's a true like artistic uh, process. And then also writing the book at the same time, you know, and going through the writing and allowing the words to sort of assemble themselves and be the right words and knowing that you're giving the real message of this card brings this to you when you read it. And I, I mean, I can't, it's just a staggering undertaking it, you know what it was one of the harder things i've ever done i'm not gonna lie and i've done some weird things in my life but um yeah to do the deck at the same time as writing the book felt really pressured you know because i would have loved to just design a deck on its own you know mm-hmm. and just only mm-hmm. focus on that but i think that it i work well ish under pressure better than when i'm left to my own devices but let's take that two of discard because to me you know, the two of discs is, is, is like a little bit of uh, paying Peter to pay Paul or robbing Peter to pay, you know, you're juggling things on the physical plane, but it isn't always just money. It's, a you know, it can like uh, quite often I'll get the two of discs in an emotional reading, right? When we're trying to juggle our emotions and sort that out and figure out what's happening, what's going on. I don't like though that on like YouTube, that card has become like, they're holding on to you too tightly. And I'm like, where are you people coming up with this stuff? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's room for many interpretations though, of what a two of pentacles means. You know, there are. The but opposite of that to me, the, the holding on to it's the opposite. It's actually mitosis. It's, it's sure the process isn't complete yet of separation. It's and in the movement. New thing coming into form. Yes. But that's not holding on. That's you're seeing a moment of it becoming. Yeah. And it beca- and it also the becoming, like I said before, uh, there's these French philosophers, um, a thousand plateaus to lose in Guattari, oh, whose yeah. book I liked, a thousand plateaus. They come on all because, the time. They come on the show, yeah. uh, up on the show all the time. Yeah. Really? Because yes. nobody talked, nobody but me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about their books, but I quite liked The Thousand Plateaus and um, back in the day. And I think there's that infinity symbol is in the Two of Pentacles too, right? Um, uh-huh. Because it's never ending, people. We are always everything, all our dualities and all the that sides becoming. of us. Yeah, We are always becoming and we were always trying to make cohesion out of something that is always in movement <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and always mm-hmm. changing. So... Yeah, that's so that's very- a, that's a that's a read on the people that say, "Oh, it's holding on, or it's or it's stuck, or whatever." It's like, no, you just walked in on a moment of becoming and decided to you that that represented a trap, but actually, change isn't the trap. It's you that turned it into that. That's <laughs> right. Even let's yeah. take the Four of Pentacles, which is another <laughs> card the tubers say is they're holding on tightly to you, and I'm like, perhaps, mm. perhaps because the person is holding on, right? But and my card is a little different. I'm going to say that's the one card where I go by a very old school traditional interpretation, which is four is solid foundations. Pentacles is home. So you taking care of yourself in your own environment, taking care of the things that need to be done at home. Now I'm fine with, there's many interpretations of that card, but again, the tubers are like, they're holding on to you tightly. And I'm like, 
I don't know. It seems to me they're not paying attention to you and they're focusing on their own shit. At least <laughs> that's the traditional meaning of the card. But but I'm willing and understand that I'm an old school reader in a sense, right? So I'm looking and learning where I can mm-hmm. from some of these new interpretations of the cards because we are in a different time than when I first studied in the 80s, the 70s, and when people, you know, this all became bigger and bigger and bigger. I do worry, though, just like back in the day, you know, there were a lot of charlatans out there. And that's, again, why I say, please get it. It doesn't matter if I mean, I'd love for you to get my set. Yes. And then leave. a. And if you like it, leave an Amazon or Goodreads review. But if it's not my set, get someone else's and learn to do it yourself. It is so much Mm -hmm. more empowering. Yes, there's something special and mystical about I'm going to go get a reading from someone else and you feel all butterfly but i'm saying you can do that for yourself at home without spending any money other than the cards and the the price of whatever set you get and it's your connection to god spirit allah buddha yahweh whatever you want to call it you know it is a, a, a path to show you to how to split yourself open so here i'm gonna um not even humble brag i'm gonna brag on myself for a second because one of the people i know i will um because no one else will do it for me um but i'm a huge fan like i said of mary Kay greer and she was holding my card up in a still from a from a conference and like everyone my initial thought not well my second my initial thought was oh my god that's so exciting and my second thought because i'm human was oh god what if she's hating it what if she's ripping it to shreds what if she doubt fear and then i went rachel this is the negotiation i do with myself all day right rachel Probably not. She's an enlightened woman who wouldn't even be bothered with it if she didn't see something in it, right? She's holding up your death card because it's a pretty good concept Mm -hmm. of transformation and of exploring yourself and opening yourself up to reveal what's underneath to transform yourself. So I have to talk to myself like that all day. And and then they reached out to do an event together. So I Mm -hmm. thought, yay, that makes me feel really good um, about the work I've done on this book to be recognized by, you know, who, someone who I consider a rock star in the field. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think, I, I think that's great. And I think, you know, I, <clears throat> I want to say one more thing and then I want to ask you one more question. Um, but, you know, I just want to say, I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't really want to take it to this place and, or in a way that reduces it, but just the fact that, you know, uh, I would love to have a tarot deck that was made by, you know, someone who is from Syria, right? Like, I would love to have that tarot deck. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I'm ever going to find the. That deck. I don't know that I'm ever going to find the queer Irish Syrian sex worker occultist tarot deck, but that's fine. I don't need everything represented perfectly, but I would like the. Um, I would like the intervention of. Uh, uh, into the deck of the psyche that resonates through my history, right? So when you are talking about bringing this to Black people um, and bringing the, what you understand of your own experience, um, I'm wondering 
one, what is coming into the deck? Now we know some of the imagery, anybody who just looks at the imagery in a cursory way, you can see that there are lots of people <laughs> from different backgrounds and there are lots of people of color in this deck and black people, especially in this deck in a way that's not represented in most other decks, there's, right? There's another but, good deck, by the way, called The Modern Witch, which has good diversity and uh -huh. probably has more sexual diversity than mine does. Just FYI. I see. So, but but, but what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is not not necessarily like I don't think although the deck does do a good job of representation in quotes actually it's bringing something beyond representation from your experience to black people that might buy the deck so I just wanted to know about what that was or hear from you about that a little well, bit I grew up in yeah. New York City right as a kid mm -hmm. New York City in a public school so everybody lived with everybody in the Lower East Side too so we had immigrants you know like fresh off the boat we we had a huge asian population huge puerto rican population indian da, 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 da. so i wanted to just include that multicultural experience mm. that i had in new york city now obviously i couldn't include everybody right mm. like that's impossible and um and one snarky reviewer said i was cultural appropriation but i was like I don't know. I don't think so. Like the, the, the chick, the, 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 the Indian chick who wrote me a DM to thank me for having the two of cups because she'd never seen herself mm. in a deck. I don't see that as appropriation. I see that as appreciation of how I grew up mm -hmm. uh, with many, many different cultures. So it was tricky though. Uh, I think it's probably why I didn't lean into native American as much though. There's a few, but not much because I thought that deserve that is something that I didn't grow up around, even though mm -hmm. I have a little in my history, but I also think that that would deserve its own deck <laughs> created mm -hmm. by a native American person. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it would be a beautiful deck, but that wasn't mine to create. Um, I just, you know, again, for me, I am a product of so much mixture, you know, with, with my family. Um, and a lot of my family also spread out and mixed too, that, that it's in my DNA and I, it didn't occur to me the people would say, well, you should do a deck of just black people. I was like, <laughs> mm. you do a deck of just black people then because the world I live in right. is very diverse. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, like if I could put it this way, it's like, you're actually depicting, um, well, while you did have a black experience of the world, you're depicting the world itself that you lived in through that experience, yeah. which is, which is different than representing, right? It's I like, think so. yeah. Although everyone's entitled to their opinion. Right. But I, I felt like I was just honoring what I saw in, in my American experience, mm -hmm. which was unlike a lot of people's very diverse up until it was not diverse at all. Uh -huh. <laughs> What are you talking about? Verve Coffee is a completely diverse place. Um, <laughs> so, but I write about it in the book. I think in some essays, like it's a lot of culture shock to go from New York City to an all-white area. You mm -hmm. know, like completely mm -hmm. that had never seen a brown person before. Like I remember one time going to a sleepover, which I was very not included in stuff, but I was invited to this one sleepover, and I had my suitcase, my sleeping bag over my shoulder, and this guy in town goes. To, he to, looks at his little son. He goes, you see that? That's a runaway. Oh, oh. The runaway. And I was like, bitch, I'm just, you know, but it was upsetting. <laughs> you're like, you mean like the musical? <laughs> but, but it was like, I knew at the time, like you're saying that because I'm black. 
Aww. You're only saying that because I'm black. You wouldn't say that if it was a white girl with a sleeping bag. You'd be like, mm-hmm. she's a white girl mm-hmm. with a sleeping bag going to a sleepover. So I was well aware of the prejudices layered on against me. I would say to my benefit, um, something you might not even think about because you're white looking. You know, mm-hmm. you're a mixture. You're white looking. You're not Syrian, Syrian looking, right? We're so attractive, by the way, Syrians. Um, not my, fa- but- not like my, not not like my father. Although I will add that, interestingly, I'm often the darkest person in the room now that I live really? in Ireland. So, like, that, I mean, this part of Arab experience where your your ethnicity blinks off and on again according to context. Well, it's like and it could be world switching. event con- could be world event context. Like, uh, I yeah. felt very Arab after September 11th. <laughs> Right. But like, but, but, or it could be, you know, the context of I live in now a super, super white country where, yeah. you know, it's like not, to, there's no diversity almost here. I mean, there is some, of course, but there's very little. So I actually read as foreign in a way that I have not sure. in a long time. Yeah. Sure. Not, not, yeah. No, I can see that very much, yeah. but, but I think, you know, there's a lot of code switching that goes on in all our lives, right? Even if you're just Anglo Anglo, there's a certain amount of code switching you do too, but I've always thought, you know, probably because it's me and I'm interested in me, <laughs> just, <laughs> but just that living in an all Anglo world for a lot of my life, you know, and dissecting mm-hmm. that and saying, well, you know what? I didn't have to read Fort Noy's complaint because you told me I should because the whiteness, uh, you know, and that's a Jewish author, but I'm saying I was so steeped in white culture. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that I wanted to dissect that. Now, I'm never going to be a traditional, quote unquote, American black girl. I'm not Southern. I'm not. I didn't grow up a certain way, but I am still a black person when I walk in the room. And I know that mixed or not, I'm a black person. So, you know, that identity in the deck was important. And it was super important to have many, many shades of of skin color, too. Um, I'm a little bummed in the printing, like the Asian people kind of printed up white, but hey, um i try i try like the king of cups is asian and he doesn't really look asian but he was Mm -hmm. supposed to be so Mm -hmm. i just think that maybe i'm being naive here but if more people had grown up the way i did which is you are around everyone else you just are that's it Mm -hmm. so my best friends were su ming louis who's you know i think was born in china and you know then a, a really nerdy woody allen white kid you know, mm. and and then a tall black chick. So I always had a lot of diversity around me. It is one of the hardest things I would say about living in Los Angeles is that it's very separate here. People don't understand that. Mm. You know, I asked someone in South Central what they thought the percentage of black people was when we'd grown up there and they were like 75%. That's what they thought the percentage of black people in America was because that's their world experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is their world is 75% black, not 13% black, like whatever our percentage is. So um, well, that's that. That's like that's what I was sort of stumbling through before when I was talking about like, oh, is it's not exactly representation. Is like, you know, when I look at this deck, one of the senses that I get, and for, and from from what you're saying, it really sort of clarifies it for me, is that. You know, some decks, they read as really particular to one place and one time period and all that. This deck actually is drawing itself from the world. And I think that that's really beautiful. There are not a lot of decks that read that way. We're actually um, experiencing different contours of the entire world, even though they're represented a certain way in a New York uh, cosmopolitan sort of background. But I'm... I'm feeling the presence of so many 
uh, contours and people from the world in this deck. And that is not exactly representation. It's, it's a sort of, um, it's a liveliness that doesn't occur elsewhere and other decks that are much more contracted and still have their use and value, of course, but it's not contracted in that way, if that makes sense. Well, it is, I think, you know, with, with the internet and, and advent of social media, we are a global community at this mm. point. It's not really synthesized yet. You know, we're only in the birth, the tiny baby birth of that. We're still an egg, frankly. But all of that is coming. And that is, I think, why I chose, let's say, the Two of Cups again, to set that in India. Because to me, if you know anything about the Taj Mahal and why it was built and da-da-da-da-da, it's in alignment with the card's mm. meaning. And then... It wouldn't make sense to me to have a Taj Mahal with two Anglo people in front of it. It would seem like mm -hmm. a little a waste of time or energy when why not evoke, you know, what mm -hmm. what the story is really about. So I don't see that as appropriation. I don't think that story uh, mm -hmm. of great love and building a palace for your love is, is a, you know, is appropriating. Love is universal. So mm -hmm. no matter what culture you are. So, yeah, I wanted things like that in there. Or, you know, the, there's a king of pentacles. I made an African man, you know, in the plains of Africa, basically, mm -hmm. uh, because that is where all life began. And um, let's just make him a king, a king of the earth. Why not? Because, you know, I knew I didn't want a white man there. That's for sure. It's a king of pentacles. <laughs> I knew I definitely wanted to leave the emperor a white man, though. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the... And the the Hierophant or the Pope, yeah. Yeah, those are yeah. very, you know, the Empress of Real Manifest Destiny card, and that's a pretty white mm. concept. So uh -huh, uh -huh. I, you know, left it as that, basically. And I wanted, um, and you know what's funny is the the uh, high, high Priestess ended up looking like, um, if you're old, she ends up looking <laughs> like Square Peg's Jamie Gertz, <laughs> uh -huh. which I didn't even mind because I thought, you know what? Uh, Jewish mysticism is huge, right? Uh -huh, the uh -huh. Everything, like, so why not have this? be a stunning jewish woman mm. in this high priestess card it is fitting culturally i have a very famous friend who's black and very churchy i sent it to her she said i didn't touch it for a week but then but then i thought about it rachel and i thought well you're not scary and you're not a devil worshiper and you just try oh, she doesn't know no i'm just <laughs> kidding <laughs> you just try to do the best thing and you want everyone to be happy so we opened it while we were on the phone and because this is what she said to herself and i'm sure people who are super religious aren't really listening to your podcast but in case there's anyone on who is she went she goes i i read my horoscope i had a past life regression i do all these things i've been to churches where they're handling snakes Right. And so we did, we ended up doing a reading that was very accurate. And I was mm. like, if you, if it's better for you to just think about it psychology wise, then just use it for that. It's a great tool for that to mm. analyze the situation like we just did. But if you want to go further with it, then it is a gateway to your own intuition, to opening up your own psychic powers. That's all it's a gateway for. Mm -hmm. It's not going to open up any terrible stuff unless you're a terrible person. That's my truth on it. <laughs> well, um, Rachel, it's awesome talking with you. And I'm so excited for people to see and use this deck and to hear this conversation, to read the book, which is a great book and just full of great stories. And um, so thank you so much. Super delightful to um, talk to you on this and really lovely to talk to someone who's in the know, you know, because I do uh -huh. a lot of interviews for people who've never, you know, don't know anything about tarot. And that's a fun conversation, too. But it's also super fun to speak with someone who's knowledgeable, who understands magic. 
you know, <laughs> and all of that. So I appreciate you having me on very much. Thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening. Yay.